Good morning, everyone. I don't know about you, but wasn't it just such a beautiful noise hearing kids making a noise in the, in the courtyard? Um, the things that we would always try and, and sometimes see as disturbances have become beautiful sounds um, after, after lockdown. Um, well, for me anyway. Um, but I don't know if you've ever had this experience of taking your child to a shopping mall for the first time. But the other day I was um, watching a mom and it was just at the Emporium up the road and um, I was watching and she was busy on her phone and her little son was walking behind her. And it came time for her to leave and she walked through the double doors, walked onto the car and she was so busy on her phone she didn't realize that her son had, um, she, her head was down, she was looking, he had actually been caught on the other side of the sliding doors. And because he was so small, um, the pressure points or the sensor wouldn't catch him and he was stuck that side and finally another adult had to run and kind of release it and he finally got to his mom when she had realized he wasn't at the car with her. Um, now I didn't laugh at him, I thought shame, but I had a laugh because it cast my mind back to last year sometime and in August we took our kids to a shopping mall for the first time. Now they had been to a few shops, but being locked down, we'd kept mostly tried to keep our kids away from those places. It was too complicated. So we were on a road trip up the West Coast, so we decided to stop at the West Coast Mall. And if you've been there, it's got those big revolving doors, you know the very big ones where a few people can walk through at the same time and they move quite slowly. And so our son ran ahead of us and the rest of the family, um, Callista, John and myself were walking and I said, watch, He's, he doesn't know what to do because he ran up to this revolving door and he put his foot in. But then we realized, we kind of, our laugh turned into a bit of concern because we realized he didn't know what to do. And he was getting a little bit overwhelmed with his foot in the revolving door. So John and I, just being parents, you jump into, into, um, yeah, like into help mode, but we weren't close enough, so we both shouted an instruction, but we shouted the opposite instruction. John shouted commit, because he backed his son, and that's what guys do, and I shouted in caution, get out, get out, and needless to say, he listened to his father and committed, and, um, and the door went, and he carried on walking, and I could see he was overwhelmed, and he was pushing, and he didn't really know what to do in this room revolving door and then he finally it started to open up on the other side and he realized he was out in the open by himself and once again we could see the problem starting to brew that he got a bit overwhelmed and the tears just started to come so John and I thought let's hop in quickly get the next revolving door around and a time goes very slowly when you're trying to sort out a crisis we hopped into the revolving door and finally trying to go and get to help him. And now there's also a Vida E on the outside. So everyone is having coffee is watching us, shouting, like, go, stop, go. You know, and then he's crying. We both get in and we realize our daughter's stuck inside the mall. <laughs> on the other side, we've forgotten about Callista. So we go in, Jono quickly, I jump out, calm Alexander down a bit. We must look like the craziest people have never been anywhere in our lives. This was after us actually spending about five minutes playing up and down the escalators earlier. Um, so we really look like the bunch of crazies. And so then I get him, Jono goes back through the revolving door to get Callista, who's crying by now. And so both our kids are having this meltdown, one on that side, one on that side. So then finally Jono gets to her, takes her in, 
but she also hasn't realized how to walk in these revolving doors, that you don't just walk straight, you actually have to walk at an angle. Also doesn't realize it's glass, so lo and behold, our young daughter, after rescuing our first, walks slapdash straight into the glass, bounces back, bursts into even more tears, the door's still coming for her. In the end, it felt like we had faced a storm, but it was just getting through a very basic revolving door with two kids. It's almost like the mall isn't made for kids, and it's not. If you think about it, it's a scary place. And if I think about the world, and I think about everything that we have to face in life, it's almost like life wasn't created for us. There is so much craziness. There is trouble that we are going to have to face. There are things we are going to have to confront that are so much greater than us. And that is where God enters in. And that is really the story of salvation, that every problem especially our sin problem, is so much greater that we need him. And this is what we see through the life of Gideon, and that we're going to be looking at um, the second in the series, God Above Our Circumstances. And this was someone who realized how much he had needed God in these circumstances. When we face curveballs in life, when the mall doors are slapping us in the face, that is our moment not to see our own greatness, but to show God's greatness in these circumstances. And so here the Israelites are, are getting a bit of a slapping themselves from the Midianites. They are being outclassed on every level. So much so that we heard last week we find Gideon and he's just trying to, as their food is getting planted and they're reaping it, it's getting pillaged. They can't even have, like kind of in a sense, make a good living and sustain themselves. They are being outclassed left, right, and center. And this is the time for God to increase so often when we face tough challenges, our first thing is to try and find a book, some sort of a self-help book to help me improve myself. A spiritual principle is God must increase and I must decrease. So we're going to see how it happens here in Judges. So we're going to go back to Judges chapter 6, verse 33, and just see how it all starts out for this man Gideon. It says in verse 33, now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning, um, summoning the Abyssalites to, fo so to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet with him. So he looks like this mighty man. You read there, the spirit of the Lord is on him. He's summoning, pe summoning people and blowing the trumpet. But an interesting thing to note is actually how he saw himself. And we covered that last week, but I'm going to read a statement he makes about himself. Because you know that no matter what people say about you, the very thing you need to overcome when you're in certain circumstances is actually how you perceive yourself. This is a man who had to overcome a lot just to honor and obey God. This is the voice in the story he was hearing in, in chapter 6, verse 15. He said this to God, My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And it's interesting to see Gideon like that because we often think of these judges as these mighty people that God called as judges. And our worldly image of judge is the person with the, you know, kind of with the authority and the cloak and the mallet and they, they're making calls. And, and it wasn't like that in those times. In fact, the only person, well, the only one referred to as a judge 
in the book of Judges is God. God was the judge. David Pawson, I like, to, like the way he explains it, they were troubleshooters. They were, God, they were people of God going into situations. And they were a rather motley crew. If you look at the stories and you track all of them, they were people that were very interesting. But God, in their weakness, used them. At the same time that this is happening in the northern kind of area, and God is raising up Gideon, there's a man in the south, Samson, and you know his crazy story. So these are weak people, people with sin issues, people with heart issues, but God is raising them up for his purposes. And then if you look at the Midianites, this mighty alliance has formed. There are people gathering together and history tells us that if they weren't the, the first to use camels, they were one of the first to use camels in warfare. And so it made them even more intimidating. They weren't just big in number. They also had, imagine if you're in a field and a horse or a camel comes running towards you, the intimidation, even just the sound on the ground, they would have had a reputation for their fierceness. That is why they, people would hide away when they came, why they could just pillage food wherever they wanted to. So the Israelites are facing a situation where they are totally outclassed. Verse 36, Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. And I know so many Christians will use this almost as a gold standard for testing God. This isn't the point of the story. If you track Gideon's journey up to now, God has called this man and given him a task. He has a conversation with God about the details. He asks questions because he's navigating the enormity of this calling. He speaks to God and he kind of explains why he shouldn't be it. And God still calls him. Not only that, but God in his goodness gives a sign. He makes a sacrifice and, and fire comes and consumes it. He sees this before his eyes. And now he's throwing out a fleece. And he's, he, not once, but he does it again. I don't think he's trying to hide his fear. I think he's trying to navigate it. And God is being completely gracious. I'm sure we can all relate to it when God gives us something hard to do. We always want to double check, God, are you really in this? Is this really what you're wanting to do? And, and I don't think God minds, but when we're testing over and over again, I don't think we should take this as a, as a thing for put a fleece out whenever you want. But we have God's heart and we have the Holy Spirit who's our counselor. Then we go to the next part and we see in, in verse 7, early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them, in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear, 
may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. So God, in, in his kindness, made this allowance. Go home. If you're facing fear, that's what you can do. And the first line in the sand is drawn. If you've ever had to lead anything and you just see one by one people disappearing, it's, it doesn't give you great confidence. But as people are decreasing and strength is decreasing, God is increasing. Moving on. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. So you see the second mighty thinning out. Now all of a sudden, that's the how they drink the water has become a thing. Because God was doing something different and he was doing something else. A lot of people have theories about the water drinking. Some will say it was the, the, the ones that kind of drank like a dog were alert and vigilant and so they were the best. Others say it was kind of like the old and the out of shape who, who battled to get down on the ground to drink. And so it was the worst of the worst. It actually doesn't matter. They were totally outcast. They were about to get a whipping by the world's standards. If you know the story, the historic story of the Spartans in 300 in the, ba in the Battle of Thermopylae, and there, 300 against the Persians, the same sort of odds, and they, although they are finely tuned killing machines, the Spartans, they, it was no use because there was only 300 of them. And I love that it highlights it doesn't make a difference in this battle. The odds are now 1 to 450, and the Midianites were already stronger, and they have camels. Can you see that God is making a way, and it can only be by God's might? I love how in earlier on um, that, that God says in, in chapter 7, verse 2, he says um, that people might boast and say, my own strength has saved me. Do you see what God is doing? He's taking away any strength, so there will be no boasting. And in your own life, if you think about it, what is your strength? What is the thing that you say, this is my greatness, this is what I do well? Because that might be the very thing that's a stumbling block for God working. Because it's often as he removes all our securities and all our greatness that it's time for God to show up. And this is what we see there. It's not about human greatness. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, um, during that night, the Lord said to Gideon, "Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura, and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you'll be encouraged. Um, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down." to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Malachites, and all the other eastern people had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could 
no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. Now, just in those days, barley, it was a humble loaf. It was the loaf of the poor. And so they were the underdogs. And so it was significant. This was the Israelites that, that he was having a, a vision of. Verse 14 tells us his friends responded. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its inter interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. And it's interesting because you see God again throws out another message to this man. This is about his fifth encounter with God in this period of time. God is speaking to him over and over and over again. And in his kindness, he doesn't rap Gideon on the knuckles. He doesn't shout at him. He doesn't throw him out and get another man to do the job. He continues to kindly lead Gideon because he says in verse 10, if you, if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp. And straight away, what does Gideon do? He goes down. So you see this man is constantly grappling with fear. And God is so kind, knowing the kind of people he's calling. He knows exactly what you need. He knew that Gideon needed the assurance. And so even though he, he, he could have just moved him, he could have said, Gideon, this isn't about you, just, but he gently just strengthened him, strengthened him, showed him, guided him, gently leading his flock, even in battle. Verse 16 Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Just after they had changed the guard, they blew their trumpets and broke their jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpet and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hand and holding in their right hands the trumpets, they, they were to blow, um, the, the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. And then what happens is you see them all turning on each other and they kill each other by sword. Do you see the picture that continually emerges throughout the Bible is God is a God of victory and his kingdom is advancing. And he can take on the enemy and he is more powerful and there's no enemy that is a match for God Almighty. The victory is in him. Not about us being glorified, but about him being glorified. In every detail of this battle, they should have been slapped by the Midianites in the face. They, the Israelites were the ones in the mall, in the revolving door, yet it turns so quickly. And isn't it great how God does that in his kingdom? You see, over and over again in the Bible, God just calling people and actually bringing them to himself. If you look at Paul, and just my point earlier of how, how our strength it's not always what he wants to harness. You look at the life of Paul, who was Saul, a man who, who in his own might could kill off the Christians, and God calls him. 
and kind of rebrands him and changes everything that he's about, a man who became humbly dependent on God. Acts 9 verse 15 described him when God spoke to Ananias about, about Saul. Paul. He said, "Go. this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Isn't it so beautiful that God handpicks his instruments? And then later, this is Paul's own testimony about himself in 2 Corinthians. He speaks about that thorn in his flesh, and he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And as Christians, I think we really need to expect things to happen that will challenge our faith, that will make us feel weak, that will make us feel insecure because God is often in those seasons doing something new. If you think about the unconventional ways he worked throughout the Bible and you read every story and put yourself in their place, you will see the enormity of the situation that God's people were in. When God would take a little boy and get him to face a giant with nothing but a slingshot and some stones, think about the greatness of the battle he was called to. When God sent the Israelites who had been wandering in the wilderness and now were being led into, into victory, into the promised land, and they had to march around walls, just march, don't do anything else, and then blow a trumpet, think about the enormity of what God was calling them to. Think about this battle and what God really was calling them to. If you were one of those 300, if you were Gideon, but think about the stories of God's greatness that you could tell afterwards. And I guess that really is the problem, is that when I do things in my own strength, I can possibly attribute it to my skills. If I organize an event and I think, well, that was great because it's something that I can do. And I can kind of say God came through, but it might have also been my own strength. In these situations, there was no other plausible explanation, but God is great and he chose to use me. 2 Corinthians 11, when, when Paul speaks about all his, his sufferings, and he has a long, long list about how he suffered more than anyone else. And you think he's building up to how great he is. But he says, if I'm going to boast in this one thing, this is the one thing I'm going to boast in. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Because when I'm weak, he is strong. That is the beauty of doing life with God. And so we see how, how God continually calls people and is still calling people to respond to that call. I'm looking for weak people. I'm looking for every sort of person to continue my work. And it's for his name's sake. And the problem is that so often we'll, in, we'll kind of see God in terms of our weaknesses. Maybe if you've had a love deficit, then you're always looking for reasons why God doesn't love you. Gideon had a fear and a faith deficit, so he was always looking for reasons why he shouldn't trust God. And isn't it beautiful that God comes in and ministers in his area of weakness and shows himself strong? And so as we are called, church, we are called to a beautiful calling. And it's for his name's sake. If you look at our thing, it's not continuing the work of Jolene. It's not continuing the work of anyone in this church. None of our names are there. It's continuing the work of Jesus. And what a high calling that is. It's not for my name's sake. And when I 
get to that place of realizing that I can rest in God, but I also need to serve Him with reverence. Have you ever considered what a high calling our church statement is, continuing the work of Jesus? What a large calling that is. What a calling of obedience that is. So often we, we want God to join us in what we're doing, but God calls us to join Him in what He's doing. So often we're praying for God to help us in what we want and we want to will, instead of saying, God, your will be done. Often we want to do things that display our might, even in ministries and, and, and f- places we find ourselves. We want to work within our strengths instead of saying, Lord, we want to display your might. Whose kingdom are you building? Do you want to build your kingdom or even this church connect this name in the community but for our own name's sake? Or do we want to build it for his kingdom's sake? Do we want to experience victory because it's so nice to win? Or do we want God to experience the victory? When we come to worship, are we putting a worship of ourselves, Or are we putting God first? Have we come to worship him? Because either way, God's purposes will prevail. And if we choose to not get on the same page with God, he will redirect. But it is a privilege to be part of his purpose. It's a holy calling. It's a set apart. We see that with Gideon for his name's sake. Something I also love about Paul is just how he practically applied the message of the gospel and spoke to the churches honestly. And so I always look at this and I go, what are you saying to me, Lord, in this season? What are you saying to the church? And for me, the first thing that came to mind is the season that we're in. And if you, do, if you aren't part of the church, I'll just explain that we're going through a season where we don't have a senior pastor, and we're going through a hard transition as we've tried to discern God's will, and we, we're pushing into that. And answers haven't always come, and things haven't always been squeaky clean, and even our last meeting wasn't a positive one. But we trust God because we have been humbled, and we can say, God, as a church, we are so weak, but you're strong. And God, this is your season. And isn't that a season where God is going to raise us up and he's going to make his name great again? And maybe God has had to do it because maybe Connect was all about us. And so as we push in for his name's sake, we come together not to craft a church that's an expression of something we want. We don't come to build a kingdom that we want. Like Gideon, we just go about God's business and what he has called us to do. And isn't that such a beautiful and holy calling? This isn't a tennis club. This isn't any other clubhouse that we're trying to craft into something that will be fun. We are building God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That is the beauty of what God is calling us to do. And the last caution is that as we, as we engage in all of this, is that the Midianites turned on each other. That was their response when they were stunned and panicked. They killed by each other's swords. And that's how the battle was won. Sometimes Satan can get victory in churches because we all start to turn on each other with a sword and we all end up killing each other. That is not what God has called us to do. He has called us to obey his instructions. And sometimes that means putting my agenda aside and my wants and saying, God, test this. See what's in my heart. Lord, if there's any impure ways in my heart, won't you come and make them pure? And so I'm also excited about the season because God is raising people up. God is raising leaders up. He's raising prayer warriors. He's raising a congregation that are his priests in this community. God is doing a new thing, and I really, really believe it, and I'm convinced. And so while I have the emotions, I'm holding on to that peace 
that this is God's church, and it's such a privilege to be a part of it. A very practical challenge is that on, on Tuesday, our AGMs on Wednesday, if you feel like you need to pray for the church, to sort your heart out, we're opening up the church just from 4 to 6 p.m. for a prayer room. So it's not a conventional prayer meeting, but come and pray. There's going to be music playing. You can get down on your knees. You can sit on a chair. I actually had a wonderful time of prayer in the church yesterday. I just came to put some things on the computer and just played some worship music. And it was just the most beautiful experience to be able to sincerely pray for the church in the church, but to pray for my own heart in this context. And I guess that's what, what the challenge is. But to be so encouraged... So many of us have felt like in the season that we're the kid in the mall getting slapped in the face over and over again by life and the world and everything in it. God is a God of victory, and what a privilege to be on His side. What a privilege to follow His instructions. Let's not get downcast, but go, Lord, what are you raising up in me? You saw something in Gideon that you could use. What are you seeing in me that you want me to use in the season? Lord, purify me, refine me. Do something new, and I believe God is. I've, in the season, been encouraged from, by people I've never been encouraged by before. New relationships are forming. Even the fact that we don't all come to the same services anymore, there have been fresh and new connections. God is doing something. He's raising us up, and we need to stand firm in that. Let's not get impatient. Let's hold on to what God is doing. Let's pray together. Lord, you are doing a new thing. We trust, Lord. We come as your people at Connect and we pray for ourselves. Lord, we pray as individual believers that you will mold us and make us. Lord, we come with different hurts. We come with different weaknesses. We come with different strengths. You can use any of them at any time because we are your instruments. We are your servants. We just need to make ourselves available. Holy Spirit, we need your help in this season. We need your guidance. We need your counsel. Lord, we thank you that we get to journey together. Lord, we pray for forgiveness if we have been on the attack and been more destructive to each other than a blessing. Lord, we pray that you'll birth a new community and just something that will emerge, Lord, whether it be smaller, whether it be whatever, Lord, just whatever way you want to do it, Lord, but we pray that at the end we will truly just hold on to that statement, continuing the work of Jesus. You think of the song that we sung, because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. I also want to just take a moment to pray for people who we've are focused on the church situation, but maybe there's situations at home and in your life where you're facing fear, anxiety, anger, whatever it is. I just pray that God will direct you and give you the peace that in his kindness and his love, he will do a new thing in that situation too. Lord, you know what those situations are. Be God. We choose to look to you, Father. We choose to obey. Lord, we pray for our AGM. We pray for the future of our congregation here. Lord, lead and guide us as you do so beautifully. Amen.